You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay. Shabbos, I get Shabbos, what am I saying? Yes, on Shabbos we'll be reading, always Shabbos. This coming Shabbos we'll be reading in the Torah reading of Emor. We've been having double Torah readings until now. And this will be one of the only ones, I think, uh, there's actually four of them in the book of Leviticus, which we read a single Torah reading, but we read last week a double reading, the week before that a double reading, next week's a double reading. But this week is a singular reading, which is called Emor, which means to say... So just a little synopsis of what the Torah reading is about. The Torah reading tells us about the laws pertaining to the impurities of a Kohen, who a Kohen is allowed to become impure to, only his immediate family. The laws of how the Kohanim had to be, have special restrictions that they had to stay in the Holy Temple. They were not allowed to go anywhere about they wanted because of the concern of them becoming impure. Even when it came to immediate families, funerals and so on, it was only the immediate family that they were allowed to go to as well as it tells us the prohibited relationships that a Kohen is allowed to marry. For example, a Kohen is not allowed to marry a divorcee, a Kohen Gadol is not allowed to marry a widow, or any woman that has been with another man beforehand, a Kohen Gadol is not allowed to be with. And when it comes to a regular Kohen, only a widow, but not any other type of woman that may have been with a man beforehand. So there are certain restrictions when it comes to a Kohen. Beyond that, the Torah tells us about a Kohen who is now to serve in the temple because of a blemish that he may have, whether it's a physical or mental blemish that he may have, that it doesn't allow him to then serve. He becomes um, dis- a disability. He's able to get from the gifts of the Kohen, but he's not able to actually serve as a Kohen. The Torah then goes on to tell us about and enumerates the different uh, how, uh, sacrifices that were brought in different times, as well as we learn about in this, uh, this week's Torah reading, the sacrifices that were brought on all the major festivals. So that is a quick, quick just overview of the entire Torah reading, and now let's get to what we're going to talk about today, which is, in fact, the name of the Torah reading, Emor, and its uh, application of what it means in the Torah reading, and to us today. About 130 years ago, there was a young girl by the name of Rachel Schiff, she lived in Vienna, Austria. She had an unbelievable talent. She was a beautiful singer. To the extent she was a religious woman, she was a religious girl. But her name got to the uh, agents and the managers of the secular world, of the opera of Vienna, that they once came into a choir, a school choir, where she was singing, and they were so amazed about her voice that the guy, the agent, came over to her and offered her a job to join the opera. Now you can understand and imagine that for a young Jewish girl at the time, 130 years ago, to be part of the Vienna opera in Austria wasn't a simple thing. The very fact that they were willing to take her and entertain a Jewish girl at such a, uh, at such a job or at such a talent, this, would, this was amazing. So Rachel over here was torn. What does she do? On one hand... What else can a young girl ask for with a beautiful voice to be part of the Vienna Opera? But on the other hand, she knew that many the anti-Semitism at the time in Austria especially was starting very quickly. And if there would be a Jewish girl that would be an opera with a name of Rachel Schiff that they knew was a Jewish girl and she dressed like a Jewish girl, there would be, of course, a lot of coercion to get her to convert to Christianity or to whatever it may be. And she didn't know what to do. Over here on one side, her life's dreams to make it as a singer, the praise, the noteworthiness, the renown. But on the other hand, her Jewish tradition, how does she go about it? And in Vienna, Austria, there was a great rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yeshua Heschel of Kapishnitz, known as the Kapishnitz Rebbe, who lived in Vienna at the time. And he came, and she came to ask him, what do I do? The Kapishnitz Rebbe looked at her and said, my dear child, what do you want? Money? Publicity? Recognition? She says, no. I have what I need. I don't need the money. So he says, what is it? He says, this is recognition. People will know renown. He asks the young girl, if I'm able to promise you 
that you're, you will have a child. And that child's name will be the most fa- will be famous, renowned, which will give you renown as well. In the Jewish world, for generations to come, in this world and in the world to come, are you willing to give it up? To go to the opera? Rachel Schiff dried her tears and she agreed. She is willing that if she gets a child, if the rabbi promises her that she'll have a child, that his name will be renowned in the Jewish community, that he will be committed to the ethos and the values of the Torah, she commits, she gives up her opportunity of joining the opera. She got married to a fellow by the name of Yosef Tzvi Vosner. Later on, they had a child who was born to them by the name of Shmuel Vosner. God protected this child at a moment before the war, World War II, started in Austria. This child all of a sudden decided to go with his wife and take the last boat to the Holy Land of Israel. As the last boat was coming to, into the port of Israel, they ran out of gas, they jumped ship, and they swam to shore, and they settled in the place called B'nai Brak. And as time came to be, this young child, Shmuel, who made it across the seas of Austria into the land of Israel, came to be known as a great well-rabbi authority, halachic authority, well-known in every home and in every rabbi, known as Rabbi Shmuel Halevi Vosner. He lived until 101 years old, recently passed away when millions of people literally were there, escorting him to his final resting place. He wrote many books, authorities in Jewish law, and they once asked Rabbi Vosner, Rabbi Don Segal once asked Rabbi Vosner if this true, if this tro- if the story about his mother is true, that that's what happened with his mother. The rabbi said, "I can't tell you if the story is true because my mother never told me the story, but I can tell you one thing: when I left my home as a young teenager to go study in yeshiva of Chachmei Lublin, my mother put her hand on my shoulder and said, "My dear son, study hard." Study well, because you'll never find out what I gave up for that you should be able to study Torah. This story, while it's an unbelievable and amazing story in its own right, but has a lot to teach us when we talk about education. It teaches us about the genius of the Rebbe of Kapishnitz, where a girl comes to him and says, I'm about to join the opera. And joining the opera then was not just having a singing audition, audition, or whatever you want to call it at the time. It meant that if she would join the opera, probably her Jewish religion would not be any more of concern to her. He could have told her, do you realize what's going to happen to you? How much purgatory and hell you're going to go through if you give up your Judaism just to be able to... the rabbi said. That's not what the rabbi did. He didn't threaten her. He didn't scare her. He didn't tell her that hell and everything else is going to open up in front of her should she take that position. What did he tell her? He said, I'll give you another choice. You want renown? You want to be popular? You want to be known? Here, I give you another opportunity. He gave her the opportunity. He gave her success. He gave her willingness. He gave her happiness. He gave her joy. He gave her something that she should be able to be able to have pride in her Judaism as in the opera. The challenges that we have of today in Judaism, and especially in the educational sphere, is that today's generation is not afraid of hell, is not afraid of purgatory, is not afraid of condemnation, is not afraid of any of the threats that come. You're going to give, you say whatever you want. No. Okay, they'll open up a new startup, they'll enjoy life, drink, well, what's the very famous American adage? Drink, be happy for tomorrow you die. That's all. No, so what happens tomorrow? Who gives out? Nobody thinks about tomorrow. Nobody thinks about what's going to happen the next day, as long as they're having a good time. What's the only way that we can impress and we can change the dynamic and to be able to give children an enthusiasm and an excitement about Yiddishkeit? That they should be interested in Judaism is if we make it something which is loving, happy, exciting, and something which they can enjoy. And this we see in this week's Torah reading. 
this entire dimension of looking at the concept of education or the challenge that a person goes through, to look at it more on the bright side, so to speak, instead of the scary side, tells us, takes us in the beginning and in what this entire Torah reading encapsulates by the name of the Torah reading. This entire Torah reading begins and tells us a word, emor, speak. And the Torah reading begins and tells us of how the elder Kohanim had an obligation to educate the younger Kohanim about the laws and its applications of what you're supposed to do in the Holy Temple. And there are many different laws that apply to it, as we began saying, the laws of purity and impurity, where they're not allowed to go into a cemetery, they're not allowed to marry this person, they're not allowed to do this, they're not allowed to do that, they have to eat their sacrifices in certain places. There's so many different details, as we see, the entire book of Leviticus is all about the laws of what the Kohanim should do. And over here we're told that the Kohanim have to explain and teach the next generation of how they should do it. And over here, the Chachamim, and as we learn through the sages, especially the Chabad Rabbeim, teach us that there's one word in the beginning of the Torah reading that encapsulates how they taught it. And how they made sure that their teachings was not something which was of a threatening, but helped them understand and appreciate. And that word was Lahazir, to warn, as we'll soon get to and explain. Our Torah reading begins with the word Emor, as we mentioned. Emor telling us about the laws about purity and impurity that the Jewish people were told concerning the Kohanim. What they're allowed to touch, what they're not allowed to touch, what they're allowed to eat, when they're allowed to eat it, the laws of truma, about tithing and who's allowed to eat it, which members of the family. Very complicated laws of what they're allowed to do. And then it goes on to tell us who they're allowed to marry. And that we know that a Kohen is not allowed to marry a divorcee. A Kohen's not allowed to marry a convert. A Kohen, is not, a Kohen Gadol is not allowed to marry even a widow. And the question is why, and some may want to explain an idea behind it. It is because a Kohen has to reach to the level of the epitome of holiness. And the only way he can reach the level of the epitome of holiness is only where he cannot have baggage from previous relationship. While the baggage may not be bad, and the baggage may not be contaminated or anything of that nature. In fact, maybe some people learn and grow because of previous relationships. But the very fact that this person was in a previous relationship and therefore needed to come to a certain level of separation, regardless if it was good or bad, means that there was a defect. That means a defect to the extent that they had to get rid of it. They had to separate. And because of that, for the Kohen, it was not something for him. The Kohen needs something, absolute, the epitome of holiness needs completion. And completion means it has to be connected because the Kohen's job is to take every single Jew and connect them to God. Now, if you've got a problem, then how can you connect somebody else? So therefore, the Kohen has to at least strive, even on the externality, is to be at the level of completion. And for that reason, the prohibition for a Kohen to marry somebody who was divorced is that he, because it shows, so to speak, a defect in his completion or in his epitome of holiness. In fact, we even have it in uh, common monarchies today, in the England law, English law, the king was not allowed to marry a woman or not allowed to be with a woman who was divorced, and the king couldn't be a divorced person. And that's why in, uh, I don't know if you recall, but who was it? King Edward, I think, in the eighth, had to give up the throne because since he was married to a divorced woman or he himself got divorced. And that's why they said even this guy that's now becoming king in a few days was going to have to give up his kingdom, but he didn't give it up because he was also divorced, whatever it may be. But they see even in a monarchy, even in a physical monarchy, there is the concept of um, not being with somebody who was in a previous relationship. But that's just a little side note. But then if we look at the actual Torah reading, we look at the words that says something unique. You know, we know every single word in the Torah is exact. And the Torah uses certain terminologies to be able to bring out certain points when it wants to say a certain specific point. And in this Torah reading, it says as follows. God says to Moses, Speak to the children, the son of Aaron, the, 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 the children of Aaron, the Kohanim, and you should tell them. If I'm speaking to them, then I'm telling them. Why does the Torah have to tell me, speak to them? And you shall tell them. A double terminology of speaking. The commentaries explain to us, the Talmud says, that the reason why the Torah says, speak to them and you shall tell them, you're going to speak to the adults and the adults will be the ones to educate the children. 
That means that the adults have an obligation to educate the children about the laws of purity and impurity. That, what is this coming to tell us? That means meaning, even though that biblically there is no obligation of education, but the Kohen may come into a place of impurity, and therefore if a Kohen who is a child goes into a place of impurity, the father doesn't have to schlep matter there, but the father should educate him to begin with that he shouldn't go into such a place. So what the Torah is telling us over here is that yes, you may not have to schlep the kid out once he's already in an impure place, but you should educate them to a way that they shouldn't go there to begin with. The interesting thing is that this is not the only place where the Torah uses this terminology. Speak to them and you shall tell them. There's another place where the Torah says it. Where it comes to the laws pertaining eating bugs. There's a prohibition that according to Judaism we're not allowed to eat any type of rodent, any type of bugs, any type of creature. And the Torah uses the terminology, this is something disgusting to you. And therefore, over there, the Torah also uses the same terminology. Speak to them, and they shall tell them. And the same terminology, again, is used that the adults have to warn the children. There's one other place in the Torah where it's used. This is used three times in the Torah. And the third place which is used is concerning the law pertaining consuming blood. Consuming blood, in fact, there's many different interpretations why the Torah says it multiple times, either because, either because it's something which is so far-fetched that the Torah is giving you a reward for not consuming blood, or on the opposite extreme, because in Egypt it was considered a delicacy to consume blood, and therefore the Torah has to come and tell them, don't consume any blood, even though you may have been used to it in previous generations, you're not allowed to consume blood. But over here also, again, the Torah uses the terminology that the adults should educate the children and not to consume blood. So we have over here three places in the Torah where the Torah says it. Number one, where it comes to the laws pertaining of the impurity of the Kohanim, Number two, when it comes to the laws of eating creatures or rodents or anything of that nature. And number three, when it comes to the law of pertaining to consuming, dub, consuming blood. As we mentioned, even though these cases, the education itself is not biblical, but over here the Torah wants to forewarn, that wants that a person should not be originally, so therefore the obligation is from the rabbis made an obligation that a person, once that a child, once they reach the age of understanding, we should give them the education that this is not allowed, that is not allowed, and so on and so forth. So the question is, first of all, as we asked, why over here, and why in this case, how do you educate a child about these things? How do you educate a child who's a Kohen and saying, you know, you can't go to the hospital to visit your friend? Because there may be a dead person there. My whole family is going. Everybody else is going. My whole class is going. Is going to the park. And uh, why can't I go to the cemetery? Why can't I do this? How do you tell a child that he is a Kohen? And he is different. And because of that, he cannot do what everybody else is doing. Even more so, when we talk about, in general in Hebrew, there's many different terminologies for the word speaking. There's Vayikra and he called. Emor, say, daber, speak. When you want to speak harshly or draw a point, you're going to use the terminology vayidaber or daber. And that's why throughout the Torah reading, most of the terminology is vayidaber Hashem Moshe, and God spoke to Moshe saying, because when he was giving a commandment, he's going to use the terminology daber. Over here, we're using a terminology of emor, ve'omarta, which is more soft tone spoken. If we're coming to tell the child, or tell the parent to educate the child about such stringent laws like pure impurity, blood, or creatures, shouldn't the Torah use more of a strict and direct language? Especially if I'm coming to tell the child, Lahazir to warn him, that he should warn the child. Shouldn't you use a more strict terminology? Even more so, why do we use the terminology that he should warn? Why don't we just tell the, tell the parent, what do you mean warn? Tell the child he's not allowed to do it. Tell the parent to tell the child he's not allowed to do it. We're using a terminology saying to warn the parents that they should tell the children. Tell the parents they shouldn't tell the children. Why are we using this terminology, lahaz here, to warn, to tell them? So if we look a little bit deeper into these three commandments that the Torah chose should be the paradigm of education. And there's an interesting letter 
that the Rebbe wrote to Dr. Leo Young, who was from the great Orthodox rabbis and the founders of the Orthodox Union back in the 1950s, where the Rebbe gives him the concepts of education by defining and showing that when the Torah picks these two places, they are because they symbolize three different types of challengers, three different types of children, that the Torah is teaching us how to educate a child. Because if you look, there's something very interesting here. Which three mitzvahs the Torah picks? Kohanim, blood and creatures. Not laws of kosher, not laws of tzitzis and tefillin, exodus of Egypt, other things. Why these three laws? And it's because these three laws are, again, are the paradigm, they're symbol of what it means in education. And what is it? And because we have three types of children, three types of challenges. Let's generalize over here at least. And when a person has to be able to um, educate a child, there are three times of where a person can say, you know what, I don't know what to do. Three circumstances. The first circumstance can be in a child who the challenge is, he just doesn't listen. You want to call it ADD, ADHD, whatever you want to label you want to put it. There is no discipline. He can't. What do you talk to him? It's, he's all over the place. You can't get through to him. He's just all over the place. And you say, listen, I can't do anything. You throw your hands up in the air. Talking to him is better. Talk to the wall, you get a better response. The kid just can't sit straight. He doesn't sit in class. The only idea today they do, they inject him with some Ritalin. And that's it. That's the only way to do it. Other than that, you can't talk to the kid. That's one kid. Then you have another kid that unfortunately is addicted. Addicted, you pick the addiction. Addicted to his iPhone, he's addicted to whatever other substance. Addicted. And you look at him, he can't even look up at you because he's busy looking at his phone the whole time, looking at his machine, his Xbox, whatever you want to call it. He's addicted to something beyond listening to anything to be educated. And then you have the third one. And the third case is, where you need to tell your child something, where you yourself as a parent got a problem with it. I don't feel comfortable telling this to my child because I'm not comfortable with it. What does this mean? So let's take the first one. We take the first child who has these challenges, who's just disruptive, doesn't have anything what to do. And as we mentioned, the teacher has no idea what to do. The parents don't know what to do. They just want to put them on some type of medication, medicate them, keep them quiet and keep them out of the way. The second child who's addicted and the third child who the parents themselves. And over here the Torah is talking about all these three different types of children. When the Torah talks about a child, when the Torah talks about the prohibition of eating these different types of creatures, what does it tell us? What kind of creature is this? A creature who wants to eat bugs. People, the average normal human being doesn't eat bugs. You don't have to be a genius or the most ethical value individual to say, you know, I don't eat bugs. That's how special I am. You don't have to come along and lecture somebody on why it's disgusting to eat bugs. But then you have a kid who you're saying, you have to tell him don't eat bugs. What kind of kid do you have to tell that doesn't, shouldn't eat bugs? A kid that probably has certain type of, uh, he has a special needs of some sort. That means he can't sit straight, he doesn't listen, he doesn't, he'll do everything. He's so disruptive and destroying. Such a kid, you may say, one second, a kid that I have to tell him that eating bugs is disgusting. We're not talking about your average kid here. Then you have another type of child, the opposite extreme. You have blood. As we mentioned, one of the reasons why blood was a prohibition because in Egypt they were so consumed it was considered an entree to be best beautiful delicious dish. That's compared to a child who's addicted, doesn't know how to get out of Egypt. He's so addicted to his phone, he's addicted to whatever is giving to him to pull him away from the television, to pull him away from his device, to pull him away from whatever substance he's on. You think it's all lost. That's blood. And then you come to the third level. The prohibition of impurity. I don't understand why impurity is. Why this is pure, why this is impure. But the Torah told me that's why it's pure and impure. Even King Solomon didn't understand all of them. But the Torah said you got to do it, you got to do it. So a parent has a problem teaching it to his child. How am I going to tell my child who's a Kohen can't be impure if I myself don't understand it? 
So over here the Torah is addressing these three challenges that we can have with children. A child who we think is far gone because since he's out of control. A child who we think is far gone because of his addictive substances, whatever it may be. And a child that we feel that we can't teach him something because I myself have a problem with what's being taught. And over here the Torah comes along and says, no. Here's you go about. This is the way you educate such a child. These types of children also have a method of education. These types of children we are able to get them beyond their challenge that they're on. How do we go about it? About a year and a half ago, there was a family. They're still there actually, but there is a family, a shluchim in China. The shluchim in China, their Khani and Musi Henik, their daughters, about nine and a half years old, one's nine, one's seven. And we're sitting on their screen as they're participating in online school. And I'm sure you all know that in China, a year and a half ago, it wasn't like over here. You were not allowed to leave your house. You had to send messengers, they delivered food to you. You were not allowed to, you were basically locked in jail because of the COVID restrictions that they had there. And as the children are sitting on their screen participating in the international conference of Shluchim, which had many shluchos, shluchos emissaries, the Rebbe's emissaries from around the world, they also had one for the children. So they were participating in the one with the children. And they're watching into, the, into one of the sessions there, and one of the people that are saying about the session is talking about the challenges that they're having in their community, about their children, what they could do, what they can't do. And all of a sudden, one girl looks at the other and says, shame, look what kind of challenges they're going through. Look how difficult it must be for them. While these girls themselves are probably in the most challenging spot, no friends, no uh, community even, they're like locked up, but they hear somebody else's challenge and they look at themselves and we are great. We are having a, such a fun time. And they're feeling bad for somebody which probably has it easier than them. What is it? What gave them that ability? Because they didn't look at their situation as confinement. They were educated in a way and thanks to their parents and to their teachers or what is, that even though they don't have a kosher store down the block and even though they don't have a restaurant within 6,000 miles and even though they all have to learn an online school and all the different com uh, complications that they may have from a Jewish perspective, they didn't look at it as a complication. They didn't look at it as a difficulty. They were proud of who they were. They looked at it as they're having it easy. Somebody else is having it worse than them. That's what education, the effective education, was that the most effective education is to not sell things as difficult, but to show the beauty in everything that's there. How is it possible? How do children enjoy something if it's actually difficult? Because they look at their parents. And they look at their parents, and if they see that their parents are excited to celebrate Judaism, then the kids will be excited to celebrate Judaism. If the father, when he walks out to go to a class, goes, Oy vey, I have to go to a class, then you can hear the kids say tomorrow, Oy vey, I have to go to school. If the father's, if the mother's excited to go to a class, excited to go make Shabbos, then the parent, the children will be excited to celebrate Shabbos. It is the message that we give to our children subconsciously. You can be telling two children the same exact thing, but it's the way you feel about it, and it's what you say before and after is what the children take. And over here it takes us back to what we take in the word. When the Torah uses, when the adults should tell the children. The word we mentioned before was lahazir, to warn the children. But the word lahazir has multiple interpretations, like we know in Hebrew, every single word can be used for multiple interpretations. The word lahazir, the root word, comes from zohar, shine, zohir, to be bright. The Talmud in the tractate of Shabbos 118b says as follows, Avuch, your father, b'mai, have a zohir. Every single one of the Talmudic scholars said, my dad, his mitzvah was that he was particular with tzitzis. His mitzvah was particular with Shabbos. And the terminology that the Talmud says is, your father, what was he most careful with? The word Zohir, to be careful, to be stringent. Mm -hmm. 
The Talmud takes and the Hasidism takes his words and says, no, it wasn't when he was most stringent. Bimai Zohir, what did he shine with? What was his whole avenue, his whole expression of Judaism? His connection to God came to an expression with the tzitzis. Another one was Shabbos. You know, there's so many different commandments. And each one talks to people differently. Some people like Shabbos, some people like Mbesach, some people like Hanukkah. But every person has to take a mitzvah. And that mitzvah channels their entire energy and their relationship with God. But it's Avuch, he was asking your father, what was his mitzvah that shined his entire relationship with God? What connected him with God? Where did he shine? Where was his excitement? The same idea is also when we educate children. It's lahazir to shine upon them, to impress upon them. It's not about warning and telling them stringencies they're going to burn or whatever it may be. When we come to educate a person about Torah and mitzvahs, it should be lahazir, shine upon them. Show them the positive relationship that they can have with God. Show them the connection. How when every mitzvah sparkles and shines and is beautiful. And this is what it means that every single one of the great scholars, the mitzvahs that they did was great was shining. This is as well as the Rebbe explains what the Kohen told his children. When a Kohen was telling his children and educating them about the laws of purity and impurity, the Torah tells us, Lahazir, explain to your children that they are Kohanim. They are the distinguished ones that they will represent the Jewish people in the Holy Temple. Remind them of this great opportunity that they have to be a Kohen. Not every person is a Kohen. Most people are a Levite and Israelite. God chose this family to be a Kohen. And because God chose you, that you, you should be the Kohen, you have the special obligation. You need to be holy. You give them, you show them the preciousness, the endearment, the beauty that's in it. The same idea, the Rebbe himself, when he would teach and speak, was the same idea. Rabbi Shmuelu, Chabad rabbi in England, says the story that once, when he was still a young student in New York, he had a big Shabbaton for about 200 college students that came for Shabbat, spending the time in the Crown Heights. And after Shabbat, they had the opportunity to be able to go into the Rebbe and ask the Rebbe their personal requests and questions. And one of the students who was a Kohen who at the time was dating a non-Jewish girl came to the Rebbe and told the Rebbe about his predicament. That while he's dating a non-Jewish girl, he also wants her to convert. But according to Jewish law, Kohen cannot marry a convert. What is he to do? While the Rebbe told him all the different um, prohibitions and the reasons and obligations of a Kohen, Still, the fellow said, well, I just want to marry. What big deal if I'm a Kohen? What's, what's, you know, big deal? I want to marry this woman. To which the Rebbe then turned to the fellow and said as follows. In the Rebbe's office, there was all around from all sides, was bookcases full of books of holy Jewish texts. The Rebbe turned to this kid and he said, look, you see all these Jewish texts? I read them all. I know them all. And still in all, I cannot be a Kohen. I can do whatever I want, but I cannot be a Kohen. He said, you were chosen a Kohen. God gave you that gift that you were born a Kohen. Recognize your quality. Recognize the value. Appreciate the greatness. And of course, the young man found another good Jewish girl that he married. What's it telling us of here again? The concept is that we learn from our forefathers and we learn from the great teachers. The mitzvah gives a person light, gives a person energy, gives a person the ability that he's able to recognize the quality of his relationship in God. You can talk to a person and you can talk to a child and accentuate the relationship they can have with God or you can accentuate their deterioration they have. Which do you want to focus on? Which do you think will bring about the best results? Is a coin passed down through the father? Yes, a coin goes from the father. What does this teach us? We see the same thing as also. They say the Talmud, the Medrash gives us a little example. That you know, every single person, depending on their quality, on their stature, they don't do certain things. Not only on their stature, but let's say you have a baseball player who has to pitch at 90 miles an hour. And he goes and does scuba diving. Or he jumps off mountains. 
his agent and his team can take him to court because he's putting himself in life. We have a million dollars, $25 million we are paying you. You cannot go put your life at risk. Not only can you not put your life at risk, you can put yourself in a way of injury. And if you injure yourself, all my $25 million that I invested in this player is kaput. Therefore, they are not allowed to put themselves in dangerous situations because it may jeopardize who they are. The same idea we tell a Kohen, you are a Kohen, you are the representative of the Jewish people. You have to make sure that you are wholesome, that you are cold, you can't become impure. Because since you are, we have $25 million depending on you. You're standing up, you're representing the Jewish people. Think about it, they have laws today, pilots are not allowed to drink a certain amount, have to sleep a certain amount. Why? Because they have responsibility. 250, 500 people that they're schlepping in the plane. People that have responsibilities, whether you're a bus driver or a pilot, whether you're a teacher or a parent, you have a responsibility. And because of that, you can't be neglecting your responsibility. So to a Kohen, has a responsibility to the Jewish people, has a responsibility of the spiritual responsibility for the Jewish people. And because of that, he doesn't, they're not allowed to just shirk that off. They can't just give up their responsibility. And because of that, they have to protect that spiritual integrity that's within them. And when we accentuate this and tell this to the Kohen, bring out within himself the beauty that they have and the relationship that they have with God and the responsibility that they have, that puts them on a pedestal to appreciate and to be able to even make sure that they stay pure. The Talmud says a story, an unbelievable story about um, in the tractate of Gitten 58b about the great scholar Rabbi Shmuel ben Kohen Gadol Ben Shmuel ben Elisha Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha was one of the great high priests he was a Kohen Gadol and he lived in the era during the time at the end of the destruction of the second temple and his children his boy his son and daughter were captured by the Romans many years went go by one is captured in one place one is taken to another place and all of a sudden, two individuals, two Roman, uh, how do you know what, noble people are talking to one another. One says, you know what, I have a captive, a boy captive. I have a girl captive. Come, let's make a shidduch. Mm-hmm. They didn't know who each other are. It was the middle of the night. They brought the two together and said, hey, they're captives. They have no choice, right? One sat on one side of the room. One sat on the other side of the room crying. The boy sat on one side of the room and said, How can I give myself over to a non-Jewish girl? My father is the high priest. I'm a Kohen. I come from Aaron Akoi. How can I allow myself to be contaminated by this non-Jewish girl? Or a captive that I don't know. He didn't know it was his sister. Meanwhile, his sister's on the other side of the room crying. I'm the daughter of the high priest. How can I allow myself to be contaminated to some non-Jewish boy who I don't know, who I never met? They cried and cried all night until finally the sun came down. Same sun, the, the sun came down. The uh, sun came up, I'm sorry. Yeah, the sun came up. And they saw each other. And when they saw each other, they cried on each other's shoulders, meeting each other of so much time to the extent that their soul left their body. From the, from the feeling, from the emotion that they had. Jeremiah talks about in the book of Lamentations, these I cry for, my eyes drip water. Two people, two children, two captives, their lives are in jeopardy. They finally can make a life for one another. They will have all the excuses in the book, their trauma, their drama, whatever you want to make that they went through. Nobody like them has suffered. What gave them the fortitude? What gave them the strength to stand strong against the temptations of the evil inclination that nobody would have known? Was the fact that they were given as a child. You are the child of a high priest. They were put on that pedestal. They couldn't bring shame to their family. They couldn't bring shame to themselves. They recognized how great they are. They recognize their importance. Lahazir, their father was able to impress upon them the idea of Lahazir, that they were beautiful, they shined, and therefore they didn't give it up. 
Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, one of the great scholars from the previous, from just he passed away in 1985, one of the great halachic authorities, in his commentary on the, Tal, on the Torah, says a similar idea. And he talks about it, especially with the Jews at the time he was talking in the early 1940s, 1930s, when the Jews that came to America, and any religious Jew that came to America meant that every single week he was finding another job. Because if you didn't work on Shabbos, before they had the, all the labor laws put in, meant you were fired from your job. And every single Shabbos you had to find a new job. And he says, why is it you find that in certain families, because of that, the children unfortunately stopped keeping Shabbos and went and stopped observing. Or in other families, the children continued to stay religious notwithstanding the challenges the father had. Ramosha Feinstein says, you know what's the difference? He says the difference was with the way the father came home. When a father came home at the end of the week, or he says, he would say, miraculously, I was able to find another job for this week. Baruch Hashem, I'll be able to work another week. And then he didn't work on Shabbos. Okay, this is what God wants, but this is what I do. Hashem will make a miracle. We'll work on it. We'll get it again. That's one type of father. Then there was another father that came home all tired. They both came home tired from a week work. And that father says, Oy, another schlup, another pain, another suffering, another time. Oh, you says, I need how difficult it is to be a Jew. He says, now ask yourself the question. Which child decided to keep Judaism and which child decided to throw away Judaism? A child who saw their parents come home and say, it's a beauty to be a Jew. Ah, the challenges, there's challenges and everything. And God makes miracles, we get through it. Those are the children that continued with their Judaism. The children who their parents, all they heard was, oh, Shabbos again. Oh, Pesach. Oh, it's the middle of the week. How many days I have to take off? It's a work week. How am I going to do it? And it? Okay, so you know what? Drop the whole thing. I won't have any problems. This is what it says in this week's Torah. What the Torah is telling us. You got to tell the adults. That means let the adults shine. Then the children already shine. It's not talking about the old adults have to warn the children. When the adults shine, when the adults are happy with what they're doing about Judaism, then automatically it's going to have a ripple effect on to the children as well. The great Musar scholars also explain a fascinating Talmud. A Talmud that talks about a very difficult Talmud, in fact, until many years that the Rebbe explained it in a positive twist. But a Talmud that talks about in the time of the destruction before the destruction of the Second Temple when the Romans already governed Temple Mount and already had authority. And many Jewish people Hellenized and became Romans. There was such once a woman from the name of the very important families of the Kohanim. Her name was Miriam, the daughter of Bilga. Who she once walked into the Holy Temple. She was a daughter of the Kohanim, walked into the Holy Temple and did a disgusting act in the Holy Temple with a Roman uh, general. And then she took her, her uh, slipper and banged it on the altar and said, Lucas, Lucas, wolf, wolf, how long are you going to let your children suffer? Because of that, her family was punished. That they, you know, every single family had a place where they would be able to eat the special holy bread. And there was like a little shelf that they would be able to keep their stuff. Her family didn't get one. Every family had like a ring in the floor where they were able to help to slaughter the animal to make it easier. Her family was deprived from one because of this incident. So that many scholars ask, this is a daughter, this is the family. What did she do wrong? Just because she did something wrong, why does the whole family get to suffer? And the Talmud says, in answering, and these scholars put it this way, and says by a quote from the Talmud, Shusa di Yanuka Bishuka the Oviv What a kid is saying in the market is because he hears his parents at home. I say this today in today's day and age as well. You know, you see these little kids, or not little kids, in the high schools, just unfortunately, just in our neighborhood, in Shoreham and Builder Place, they're putting swastikas in people's desks and people's places. It's not the kids that are doing it. The kids, what do they know what it is? It's what they hear at home. A kid is saying what they hear at home. Kids are just repeating what they hear at home. You know this thing that the preschool teacher once told and made a deal with the parent. 
I won't believe what they say, and you don't believe what they say. That's all, right? I won't believe what they say happens in school. I won't believe what they tell me happens at home. Bill, kids say what happens at home, like it or not. And over here, what's going on? Why was this Miriam Basbilga, why did she become such a woman who came to desecrate the Holy Temple? Because there are two types of Kohanim. There is a Kohen that works in the Holy Temple, and there's a Kohen that works in the Holy Temple that he's excited and he's happy to bring your sacrifices. He's excited to do what God's work. And he comes home and he's tired, he's sweating, he's hurting. But he says, I had the opportunity to work in the Holy Temple. But then there's a Kohen that comes home after a hard day of work in the Holy Temple and he says, oh, this Nudnik came with five sacrifices. That Nudnik wanted me to do this. Oh, I have no time. I have no patience. What do you think the daughter's going to think a Kohen is? A schlepper. He doesn't want the job. He doesn't want to be there. And this is where we get a daughter like Miriam Basbilga. Same ideas also. We just had Passover. Remember the four questions? In the four questions, there are many different orders how we ask the four questions. You can put first the matzah, then the murder. The Chabad custom is that we first put the dipping, then the matzah, then the murder. The question is why? The matzah and the murder are biblical commandments. The dipping is only a custom. Because what do you remember most from your family? Tradition. The traditions, the customs. These are biblical commandments, okay. Biblical commandments, some I do, some I don't do. Rabbinic, some I do, some I don't do. Who knows? But a custom, this is the way my mother did it, doesn't make a difference. You know the story about the woman who always used to cut the ends of the brisket before she put it in the pot. She came to her daughter, said, this is the way you got to do it. You got to cut the ends of the brisket. Finally, the granddaughter wanted to know why. Grandma, why are you always cutting the ends of the brisket before you put it in the pot? She says, I don't know. That's the way my mother did it. So they called up her great-grandmother. She's in the old nursing home. And they asked her, why do you cut the ends of the brisket when you put it in the pot? Just because I didn't have a pot big enough to fit in the brisket. <laughs> but the bottom line is that we know the same ideas also. That nobody, what we remember, what we remember is the way we, we made people feel. Not what we said, not what we did, but we made them feel. The key to Jewish education is how we make people feel. And therefore, Emre Valmarto, the Torah tells us in all three cases, you may be not excited about the laws of purity and impurity. It's not about what you're excited about. Feel excited about it, your children will be excited about it. You have a kid that you can't talk to. You have a kid that maybe is a who knows what, he's jumping all over. You know what? Show him the appreciation. Show the child what the beauty of Judaism. Even that child, he won't need riddle to be excited about it as well. You have a child that may be addicted. Why is he addicted to his device? Because that's where he finds solace. Because when he, he hits the button and says, you're a genius. Who else told him he's a genius if not for the computer device? Who else told him that he's a winner if not for the computer device? All he hears from his parents, from his teacher. You don't do good on your test. You're a failure, you're a failure. So what does he stick to? Something that makes him feel good. The substance, the device, or the game, whatever it may be. But if you make that child feel good, Lahazir, you shine him, you show him the beauty of Torah mitzvahs. He doesn't need to go anywhere else for a high. He can get his high from doing the mitzvah. He can get his high. He can get his feeling that he's a winner from doing the mitzvah. This is what the Torah tells us, especially as we're coming close to Lag Bomer, next Tuesday is Lag Bomer. Lag Bomer tells us about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was the author of the Zohar. The Zohar means to shine, to be bright. And then Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai talks about the Zohar, and we talk about the Zohar. And on the day of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, we have a custom that where do we celebrate? Out in the field. Marching Jewish pride. Giving a child Jewish pride is the best ingredient that we can give them to be able to fend off all the evil impurities on the side. But if you tell them, you've got to worry about that. Can say, that can say, what do you, who wants to live such a life? Worry about everybody who has to say. But if you tell them that life is that I can go marching in the street being proud who I am, this is shining. The positive attitude that we give to Judaism. A fabulous story is told about a fellow by the name of Rabbi Echil, Yaakovson. He says story about himself. He says his father he was a simple uh, bricklayer. Wasn't a, didn't have a blue collar, cr cr a blue collar job. Didn't have uh, nothing major. He didn't understand in education, scholars. He had no PhDs. There were all these different types of names or initials after his name. He was a simple guy. 
He says he barely knew how to read Hebrew. Barely he was able to daven. He wasn't able to learn with me Torah. He wasn't able to take me to the games or teach me challenges in life. He says he was a Holocaust survivor. But he was a Holocaust survivor, very simple guy, barely knew how to read. And I today am a rabbi of a community, a man of education, with a bunch of initials after my name. How did that all happen? And he says, you know how it all happened? Only because of my father. And he says, I'll tell you why. He says, in my house, we had a tzedakah box on the wall. Every single, and it was a tzedakah box probably from the JNF that already had 17 markings on it and all over. And it was just sitting there. But every single day, when my father would come home from work, all tired, he would stand next to the tzedakah box, meditating, you'd think. And he'd put in, take out from his pocket, three coins. And he'd put in one coin and he'd look at it and he'd say another coin and then another coin. And while he was putting the coins into the box, he would say, Almighty God, thank you for giving me a son. Then he would take another box and say, Thank you, you gave me a son that davens and benches. And then he put in a third son. He said, I only have one request of God, that he should continue to daven and to learn. And he'd do this every single day. Taking one coin, thank you for giving me a son. Thanking you for giving me a son that davens and benches. Now thank you that he continued to learn and daven. And he says, that's all I need in life. And he would do this every single night, year after year, day after day. This rabbi says, years passed, I had the own opportunity to get married, have a family. Eight years passed until I finally had a child. I was able to have a child, and thank God I was able to have a child. I, right away I was jumped up from my place. I didn't know anybody. I was all alone. Who am I going to tell? What am I going to see? But I was so excited. And I run to my parents' house. And I want to be able to tell my parents about the fact that I just had a child. And as I walk into my house, my father standing there by the pushka. One coin, thank you for giving me a child. Thank you for giving me a child that learns in Davins. May he continue to learn in Davin, that's all I need. I picked up my hand and I said, wow. As I was putting in, the, he says he was putting in the coins, I see my father putting in the coins next to me. This is the inheritance that we can give to our children. This is the legacy we give to our children. The pride, the happiness, the joy of Judaism, the caring about them, they'll never forget. You can give them so many other nonsense, physical, materialistic pleasures. It comes and it goes. But when we give them the attitude of joy, the joy of being a Jew, the joy of being life, the joy of life, the caring of life. As what's the very famous saying, nobody cares what you say, nobody cares what you do, nobody cares until they know you care. This is the bottom line. When they know you care and they see what you've done, and that's the legacy that they'll continue. It's the customs, it's the traditions, it's the joy of life and the joy of Judaism that they'll never forget.